Askell Leadership Podcast with Jeff Barton. Hello there, welcome to the Askell Leadership Podcast for February, though I slightly missed the deadline, so you're probably listening to this in March or beyond. But anyway, welcome to it. We've got a number of things for you. Stephen Munday is the new president of the Chartered College, and he's going to talk about his role, but also the work he's done in senior leadership over the years. Then I was invited by the Grammar School Heads Association to go and visit uh, a range of schools in a highly selective area, in High Wycombe, in fact. And uh, during the day I visited a boys' grammar school, State Grammar School, I visited a girls' high school, and I visited a community school also in High Wycombe, and each of them was hugely impressed by what I was seeing and also by the quality of the leadership, and I spoke to the three head teachers there. At our recent primary conference, one of the big areas of focus, inevitably and rightly, was on literacy, and one of the experts in literacy, particularly the importance of word power, vocabulary, is Jean Gross, and she gives some insights into why that matters so much. Finally, at a time when we're all concerned about young people's mental health as well as their opportunities for physical activity, when we worry about a curriculum that's narrowing, I was able to talk to Ali Oliver, Chief Executive of the Youth Sport Trust, who talks with characteristic inspiration about the opportunity that sport gives across the curriculum in terms of health, well-being, leadership for young people. Hope you enjoy it. I'm Stephen Munday, I'm President of the Charter College of Teaching, um, but I'm also um, a National Representative on the Teaching School Council, uh, and uh, I'm on the Ascal Council as well. And you also run a very successful trust in, which is largely in Cambridgeshire, I think, isn't it? Could you just tell us about that? Uh, yeah, it's now a fully cross-phase trust of 10, 10 schools, the CAM Academy Trust, Cambridge Area Multi-Academy Trust uh, in South Cambridgeshire and Hunting uh, done um, and uh, that's grown out of what was secondary but now has more primaries and secondary w- which is great and we're trying to make it work as a real proper local cross-phase trust. I remember first encountering you, you'd just been appointed I think as head at Combaton. Combaton we all knew was a, a successful school. It was one of those Cambridgeshire village colleges which were always rooted in this idea of, of looking outwards weren't Correct. they and essentially that's what you've continued to do isn't it? Uh, completely, totally and utterly and once you're into that you, you can't stop believing that it's a great model because it is and it's got absolutely enshrined in our fundamental principles about our trust principle three is called the community principle actually principle two is the comprehensive principle because the two largely go together and we expect all our schools absolutely to believe in that to serve their local communities very much with a village college ethos we do have four village colleges out of the ten schools one of them primary the other three secondary one of which we actually opened as a village college so i guess that shows the level of commitment to that model of schooling well let's talk about the chartered college because it seems to me we've seen an evolution and we've seen a significant uh, staging post in that evolution recently yeah. insofar as we've now got uh, an elected council and we've got a president and yeah. so on it started to formalize something which people have talked about for a long time yeah. that would be my kind of thumbnail sketch of it is that what it's feeling like yeah i'd, I'd say it's it's more than just emerging i'd say it's developing but but still we we have to remember uh, this is pretty new and and it's going through significant significant stages, you don't click your fingers and have the full professional body the next day, this takes time to build and it's got to be based on the profession itself and growing membership and commitment and belief and feeling like that. But absolutely, I think you're completely right, it's emerged and it is now developing and we're in that stage of strong development, confirming and clarifying the role within the system and the profession that the Chartered College of Teaching as the full professional body of the teaching profession can be and should be 
and, and we're starting to do things that are in line with that and behave in line with that, I believe. Now, there'll be people who listen to that and think, well, you know, I'm a member of ASCAL or, yep. or some other union and association. Sure. What, what do you mean when you talk about a professional body? What, why is it that teaching particularly needs a professional body? I think the easiest way to answer that question is look at the medical profession and, and look how things work there. And you start looking at the parallels and it begins to look strange that absolutely clearly there are professional bodies um, of different branches of the medical profession who lead the way on behalf of the profession, who engage with the research, look at practice and clarify for the profession good effective ways of working and the profession gets on with it and that's what they expect and everyone does that. What a sensible idea. It's just when you take that parallel across the teaching profession and say, hang on, that, that doesn't seem to be quite how it works. And then you say, why on earth what? Now that does not in any way whatsoever mean you don't need unions. I would advise anyone ever as the president of the Charter College of Teaching to be in um, a teacher's trade union, a, a school leader's trade union. Of course, terms, conditions, um, support in various ways, etc. Absolutely. And of course, there'll be joint working and collaboration about professional development uh, possibilities, etc., between the professional body and the trade union. But, the, but they do have distinct and complementary roles. And absolutely, I think it's important we understand that. There's no competition. It's not either or, it's both and. Now, what we see for those of us who uh, stalk Twitter is people saying well this is the Chartered College of Teaching it should be teachers, it should be teachers who are running it, teachers who are members of it and therefore as soon as you start seeing people who are leaders, sure. it kind of dilutes the brand or something like that. Yeah, uh, okay, I mean in terms of membership, of course this is the teacher's professional body and teachers are the absolute core of the membership. Um, I am a teacher um, and you, you can't take that out of me. You might try and take that out of me, but, but, but that's who I am. I am a qualified teacher. How much I do or don't teach in a classroom in one particular year can't stop, and that's a really important point in a true profession. I can't stop being a teacher unless someone strips me of a badge for certain reasons or something. That's the way it is. So that's how I perceive myself and would introduce myself. I might have a particular role that may not be identical to when I was a full-time classroom teacher. My level of commitment is certainly not diminished. Actually, my own view would be if there are people who believe in this and are committed to this why on earth wouldn't we want all of them working together in the best way possible to provide the strongest possible organization for the sake of the profession itself working with and on behalf of the profession so I, I would say all of us absolutely should be and we're going to be a much stronger organization for that of course absolutely teachers are the heart of this it's our professional body and teachers are the absolute core of the membership quite right and final question we're speaking to ASCAL members here, 19,000 or so of them, what can they be doing to promote the work of the Chartered College? Well, um, they could all be members. I mean, that's the, such an obvious point to make, but, but absolutely, I wouldn't hesitate to make that point. I mean, clearly, a full professional body is really going to be that when we get the bulk of the profession being members. Um, you may well know membership is not expensive for what one gets, and there's clear additional benefit of publications, me mechanisms, networking, etc. So please do join. Many members of ASCAL, of course, could also become fellows because of the great work they've done over a period of time, which is a great thing, gives access and influence in various ways across the profession, engagement with policy makers and others that we would seek for fellows to, to hold that sort of influence, so why not? And, and absolutely we're hoping that as things develop it's a proper accolade and recognition of a, a great service for the teaching professions, but, but please engage, please become a member and 
A further possibility, especially for our school members, is more and more organisations, whether schools, trust, teaching school alliances, are genuinely thinking about how could we make this work right across our group? And, and that is a strong possibility in terms of mass membership in a school, a trust or wherever. The opportunities there then are for really powerful professional development through uh, that group membership, using some of the publications at the heart of professional development themes, etc. It's really quite a, an exciting possibility why not think about that for your whole organisation and look at the value added that might give your organisation if it were to be the case. Stephen Monday, thank you very much. I'm Phil Wayne and I'm the headmaster of the Royal Grammar School in Iwickham, locally known as RGS. Uh, and we're sitting here at RGS. Tell us a little bit about the school, because you've been here around four years, haven't you? Just give us a flavour of it. I'm, yeah, now my fourth year. It's a school, it's an all-boys school, uh, just under 1,400 boys, uh, not far off 200 staff. Um, we are a selective school within a, a north, uh, an area which principally is, is selective. So we have 13 grammar schools, of which we are one, and a number of non-selective schools. Two, um, we also have boarding, we're a state boarding school with about 70 boarders. Um, a really strong tradition of sport, rugby in particular, um, and also music uh, is a huge strength of the school. We're very proud of um, the boys that we, we turn out from being 11-year-olds who come from a range of different primary schools and are very proud to leave as RGS boys. And it's interesting having just walked around, you do what lots of us do in our early stage of headship, which is essentially having a look at the ethos. You talk about the ethos quite a lot here. And the ethos is uh, demonstrated very visibly uh, in kind of displays and so on and so forth. But you're also in the process of modernising. Just talk us through that balance of making sure you kind of give a sense of what's important from the past, but also a sense of where the school might be going in the future. I think what's quite interesting about a school like this, which goes back to 1562, in fact, we've you know, still got the Royal Charter, which we wheel out on, on display uh, from time to time, um, which is actually renovated fairly recently by, by you know, the generosity of some parents. It's a really, really beautiful document, but it really reminds you of the heritage of the school. And I think it's a lot of parents, a lot of boys choose RGS because of the fact there is an element of tradition here. So, you know, uh, our staff is still called Sir and Ma'am. I'm called Headmaster. There is, uh, we still have a hymn, you know, a couple of times a week. We have a very formal remembrance ceremony. Um, and I think, I think those sort of things are things that we kind of need to hold on to. And in order to do that, it requires not only the leadership from, you know, the head and, and the deputy to do that, but also f- from key staff around the school who've been here for a number of years who are able to... Um, just keep that ethos going so the young staff join maybe from other schools and buy into that that sort of ethos straight away on the other hand and it's it's equally important that we are providing a modern progressive education Uh, so I'm very keen that we make sure that our uh, curriculum offer and our co-curricular offer meets the needs of of 21st century young people Uh, but also that we are embracing technology to teach our boys in, in a way that they will be accessing technology when they go to work. So, for example, uh, we have a digital strategy um, and that, that has been placed in the hands of an assistant head who is able to really start moving on, uh, moving towards the digital age, uh, I, th- I think, in a big way. Um, but also making the, 
assured that the school appears modern in its uh, in its practices. So, mm. so whether it is through you know using technology for reports or for attendance um, or for communication with parents, is that we're not seen to be stuck in the past. We're not fully there yet. So we've still got work to do, but I think we've made rapid progress. And I'd like to think you know three or four years time that we are really you know at the cutting edge of, of technology. Yeah, that sense of, of tradition meeting innovation is very striking walking around. I want to ask you a couple of questions about selection because clearly here in Buckingham show we are in the kind of heartland of selection. Parents know about selection and so on. Um, what, what does it feel like from, from your point of view? Because I, I guess what people could say is that actually because you've got students who have passed an entry test and they therefore come here, it gives you the opportunity to be more innovative because essentially you don't have to worry about behaviour and things like that. And I know that's a terrible generalisation. But equally, you could argue the opposite, that actually what parents are expecting is that sense of tradition rather than there being too much innovation. So there's always a balance there. So when it comes to kind of pedagogy and, and the quality of teaching and learning, what kind of things are you doing with staff? Well, what's quite interesting is that there are... Uh in some respects, with with you know certain groups of boys, you could quite happily just deliver a, a lesson as though it was forty years ago, and the boys would merrily write down what you asked them to write down. And occasionally, that that um, has its place. I think what's important here is that we are privileged. There's no question about it. Um, to be able to give staff autonomy to teach in which way suits them best. So I, when I observe a lesson, what I'm looking for is are the boys making progress? That's my big thing. Are they enjoying their learning? Um, irrespective of how it's achieved. And I, and I think the vast majority of staff will use a range, have a repertoire of skills essentially that they, they will employ um, according to the topic, the need, the class, the age of the boys. Um, so you can you know, quite happily see a, ped- a, a, a didactic lesson now and again. You'll see a lesson that's totally based around technology you'll see you know practical acting out of, of scenarios um, so I, th- I think a broad range of teaching style taps in eventually to to every boy and that's something I really encourage but I've been very very clear that I what I'm interested in is the outcomes that teachers achieve for their students rather than the means by which they do it. Mm. The bit that uh, surprised me on the tour is that we walked into a lesson which was about mindfulness mm-hmm. and I think what what I might have expected is that given that these youngsters will have, in some cases, been coached and so on, they'll have done 11 plus, that they might have then expected they were going to be in a culture which was very, very fiercely competitive. And what's striking walking around is that the teacher's very relaxed with them. They know the boys very, very well. Relationships are strong. But there was a teacher assistant head, if I remember, actually teaching young people how to manage their emotions. Is that something relatively new? Yeah, I, th- I mean, it, it is a competitive environment. And I think that without question, the boys, there is a natural uh, spirit of competition amongst the boys. And I, th- I think it's a, a positive thing. I don't see it as a, as a, as a, as a particular negative. Um, on the other hand, I think it's really important that we are able to teach boys the importance of stepping back, thinking about what, what they're doing, and also making sure they are looking after their own sort of well-being. Um, so it, about three years ago, probably, we, we started to realise, I think, that the, probably the whole counselling um, process that we had was perhaps not quite fit for purpose. So we did invest in that. Um, and also we've been able to look at other... Uh, staffing models to deal with particular barriers for learning but clearly in order to achieve a happy student body who were able to look after their mental health and mental well-being it required proper training so we undertook a training course for staff called dot b um, which has enabled a number of staff to deliver lessons 
I have to say that I'm very fortunate to have an assistant head who's absolutely passionate about the, the pastoral side of the school, the student development side of the school, and therefore it is exceptionally well led. And um, as you saw this morning, she's able to lead absolutely by example. Uh, last question. Uh, so we're here in High Wycombe. You were saying as we drove through that High Wycombe itself is changing, demographics are changing there. And the school's changing to some extent, isn't it? And what, what has struck me walking around is how much more multicultural than I might have mm. assumed it was going to be. Could you just say something finally in terms of what the intake is feeling like? Yes, I, I, I mean, I mean, High Wycombe as a town is is very, very mixed uh, ethnically. Um, the villages, uh, as you go out um, from the town, are, are less so. Um, but certainly I think the school itself represents, you know, um, not necessarily the town, but certainly the wider population, I think, is well represented within the school. So we're probably looking um, at around probably between 30 and 35% of students are of Asian origin here, um, but a number of, you know, mixed mixed ethnicity families as well, um, as well as a number of, you know, uh, white, white sort of uh, British boys as well. So it, it, it is, it's a good mix, and I think it actually prepares students really well. For- what, where, where do your boys go when they finish? Let's say they go into the sixth form, which the majority will yes, go into the sixth form here. Yes. And I'm guessing the majority of them then go off to universities. Uh, 90-odd percent go yeah. off to university. Yeah, we, we started to see a, an increase in apprenticeships, not, yeah. not many, but, you know, uh, incrementally so. Um, we probably get between sort of 14 to 20 to Oxford and Cambridge most years, um, a goodly number of medics and you know, fewer vets actually, but uh, certainly medics is popular. Uh, engineering is actually our biggest um, yeah. biggest uh, sort of destination, uh, but they, they go all over, and, you know, uh, you know Durham, the, the, the Red Bricks, the Russell Group, or higher tariff universities are probably the most most common for, for most of our boys. But we also have, you know, boys who go off to music college um, or another kind of university that deals something. One boy in particular, I remember, went off to do animation. Um, oh. you're, not, you're not going to do that at, you know, Durham, but you know, he yeah. went he went to the university yeah. that, that suited suited that course. So, um, and they come back, you know, full of university when we see them at their um, prize giving ceremony in, in January, but also full of pride for RGS, which is, which is all pride in RGS, sorry, that yeah. I think is, is always a great thing for us to see. Yeah. Philip Wayne, thank you. My pleasure. Sharon Crommie, head teacher of Wickham High School. And tell us a bit about Wickham High School. It's a selective girls grammar school based in the town of High Wickham with a urban and rural catchment serving 70 feeder primary schools with 1,320 girls. And you spoke very passionately a few minutes ago about why uh, girls schools give something to, to the young people who come here uh, that they wouldn't get in a mixed school. Can you just t- talk me through that? Yes, I think um, in today's world, um, you do not have to be together to be equal. You can be separate and equal. And girls' schools, single-sex schools, champion the needs of those young people. Um, they um, defy national statistics in terms of its uptake of mathematics and science subjects amongst girls and the same is true perhaps in boys schools of boys studying and taking up English and you know, gender stereotypical subjects. So how many students have you got doing maths and further maths for example? Um, in September next year over half the year 12 year group will be doing mathematics, right. over 30 will be doing further mathematics, um, 30 will be doing core mathematics and um, chemistry numbers are into the 60s of the year group, biology bigger than that, and physics over 30. 
Uh, and it also um, plays out in terms of extracurricular activities, doesn't it? You were talking about sport yeah, before. Yeah, Give us a flavour yeah. of that. Well, 100% of your intake is available for sport and for extracurricular activities, which means that we can offer a very, very wide range of sport. So our ethos and philosophy is to cater for every need. So we don't just specialise in one sport. We aim to provide something for everyone. So we have, I think, in year seven, up to five, six netball teams. Um, hockey, um, trampolining, rugby, football, ultimate frisbee, um, you know, you name it, um, the schools can offer it, um, which means it's a really good experience. School plays, school productions, there is a part for every child. You're not, you know, having a gender balance. You can have a, um, a, a part for every child. And we're in the heart of Buckinghamshire, and one of the things you were saying earlier on is from a parental choice point of view, parents get lots and lots of choice. It makes it tougher for leaders in many ways, doesn't it? Can you just explain why it's tough being a leader with so much selection of different types around? Yes, well, Buckinghamshire, I think, is extraordinary. The admissions code has worked very strongly in favour of parents and students. So you have the grammar school system, you've got the upper school system, and you've got all ability academies in Buckinghamshire. You're also surrounded by other counties which um, have independent schools and comprehensive schools. So there's a lot of fluidity of movement um, across counties, Berkshire, Oxfordshire, Hampshire, etc. And into London, we're 23 minutes away from London on a train. Mm. Um, So that means, which is great for parents, huge element of choice. As a school leader, with the way the funding formula works, um, that brings extraordinary pressure because schools are funded on the number of children they have in their schools. I hate to say it, I hate to think about it in terms like that, and that is the sad reality. Um, And my school was the 13th worst funded at Key Stage 3 and Key Stage 4 until the National Fair Funding Formula came in, which we welcomed. But that said, when people have choice, finalising your intake by a certain date is very difficult. So it can be right up to the 31st of August before you know how many students you will have. So planning a curriculum, planning your staffing is extraordinarily difficult. So what's great for parents comes at a high cost for schools and in terms of a leadership team and being the head of a school, very high stakes accountability. Because if you don't balance the budget, that in today's world is a flag for will you be academised, will you be sponsored? Um, will you survive Mm. Um, and then add that into the mix you know a high stakes accountability system via Ofsted um, I think it's a challenging world for leaders Mm, Uh, One last question I I suppose some people would think that um, having all girls, having all boys school belongs to a different era now that we talk about gender in different terms and one of the things that strikes me is that actually in terms of young people who might identify as gender neutral for example is something which you in leading a girls school have, have dealt with, you've, yeah. you've, you've got a very clear sense of, of how to work with that, can you just give us a flavour of that? Yeah it's very much in line with the philosophy and ethos of the school um, which is all about equality So um, in the same way that one treats all children equally, if a child identifies as transgender, they will be treated equally. So we're very proud to be a girls' school, but we've always had boys in it through collaboration with other local boys' schools who come to us for teaching and vice versa. If one of our um, students identifies as transgender, then they will be treated equally. 
and we have worked through over a long number of years processes and procedures to ensure that that child and their family are heard, that we work with them, that we cater for them and um, that they are treated sensitively and well and the whole community embraces that and we have not had any issue with it. So we've got transgender toilets, our uniform is gender neutral um, to make that easy and accommodating and it, staff are well trained and we work um, with expert agencies, you know we've got Stonewall ambassadors etc. Um, so we work hard on it and we respond so it is not exclusive. Sharon, thank you very much. I'm David Hood. I'm head teacher at Cressex Community School in High Wycombe. Uh, David, we're here in uh, High Wycombe. It's a selective system. We're here in a proud community school. Aren't we? Um, just give us a flavour of, of the intake of the school and what your values are. Okay, the intake of the school is very mixed. Um, given the fact that we have an 11 plus, clearly there is a selective factor to the intake. Um, but our values and beliefs are that every child will succeed and exceed their expectations if, if that's what we can do with them. But it's all about um, yeah, building success. High achievement for all is our shared responsibilities, our motto, and we try to make that work every day. And one of the things you were saying, uh, like, like other people in this area, is how difficult recruitment is. Uh, what kind of things have you, you had to do to try and get teachers to be able to come and work here? Okay, we've got a huge array of different things, which I'm sure others will, will know all about. Um, we've grown our own. We have a number of people who came to us, for example, as teaching assistants or who we picked up in the community who'd done degrees in relevant subjects, who we brought in to, to, to acquire some classroom expertise, all of whom have grown into really excellent teachers. Uh, we've also had to cast our net abroad. We have uh, colleagues from Australia and Canada with us at the moment, again, who are making a really, really good contribution. And we've um, we backed up internally. We've, we've acquired expertise we didn't think that we had to make sure that all of our pupils get uh, get the curriculum they deserve. Yeah. And in terms of just watching, we've just been watching lunchtime where you've got 700 young people ha having their lunch. And it's, it's quite a mixed community in terms of their ethnic backgrounds there. Uh, and what I was watching was to see whether you could see children from different backgrounds visibly mixing. Uh, they were very, very, very striking. Feels to me like you put a lot of emphasis on the kind of community cohesion. Yeah, yeah. Community is 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 part of our name, and, and we we underline that very very strongly at all times. Also, actually, it's perhaps worth noting that we're a cooperative school, part of the cooperative schools movement, and the values of that movement are very much about respecting everybody, everybody belonging, doing our best for everybody. Values driven, faith neutral. That's our approach, and we we do try to live that out every day. Very good. Now, you've been head here for, I've forgotten... Uh, nearly 11 years. Nearly 11 years. Uh, what, what are you particularly proud of, apart from the stunning building, but we know that actually schools are about more than the building. What are you particularly proud of? No, what, what I'm really proud of is, is our community, the community within our school and the, the wider community of which our school is a part. That's what we work out. We want youngsters to, to stand tall, to feel proud of who they are and what they can achieve, and we also want them to achieve, and, and so... Looking at results, we're very pleased too that, that we're on a rising trend in terms of results because for us those results are, they're the passports to, to future success for those children. So all of that coming together I think gives us something to be proud of. Totally. One last question which is about that. You've got a sixth form, small sixth form, and it's got a very deliberate sense of social mission if I can put it like that. And I just think it would be interesting to hear about that sixth form. Yeah, uh, our sixth form offers one course, uh, both at level two and level three. It's in children's play, learning and development. And the intention there is very much to ensure that youngsters who might otherwise leave education at the end of 16 uh, to go back into perfectly reputable things in terms of family expectations. But we seek to give them the chance to stay in education to, to if 
they wish to and they achieve the grades to go on to, to universities and many have but also to work in the local community in local nurseries and, and early years providers um, and more widely in the uh, social care field as well. Yeah, there's a real sense of education being a stepping stone into a world which wouldn't be open to them otherwise. Yeah, yeah, yeah. great. David Hood, thank you very much. You're welcome. Hello, I'm Jean Gross. Um, I've had a number of different lovely jobs, including one as the government's communication champion for children. And, and tell us, what does a, a government uh, communication champion do, Jean? That's why it was such a lovely job, because there was a, you could make it up, and I did make it up. Um, my j- role was to promote the importance of children's speech, language and communication to anybody who would listen to me, and also to try and get better help for the... 10% of children who really struggle with this, so there was an element of the, those who really have special needs in this and then an element of promoting better opportunities for all children, including disadvantaged So children. give us a flavour of what you had been involved in prior to that, what your career had been. I was once an educational psychologist. I've been a teacher. I was head of services in a local th- children's service in a local authority, and then I worked for the national strategies. I led on inclusion for the national strategies. I led a couple of a charity that did every child a reader and every child counts. So, really interested in the number of children who really can't read. And yeah, that was yeah. about them. And we're here at our primary conference, which has got uh, the title. Uh, which essentially is linking social mobility and literacy. And I know there are people who will say, well, actually, social mobility can't be sorted out through education. We accept it can't be sorted out, but nevertheless, education plays an important part. And in particular, vocabulary, we now realise the word gap is important. Could you talk talk to me about why the word gap is significant? Because there's so much evidence that disadvantaged children start school and then increasingly through school don't know, use and understand as many words as, on average, their more affluent peers. But I would stress it, we talk a lot about vocabulary, it's actually beyond vocabulary, it's being able to put sentences together, it's, it's having the confidence to speak, it's oracy more broadly. I think we sh- vocabulary is probably the most important things, but language is bigger than vocabulary. You made some in- important points today about oracy, because oracy, it seems to me, is, is notwithstanding there are people doing interesting things, School 21 and so on, I just spoke to Ofsted's lead, Sarah, uh, in terms of does oracy show up in the new framework. It doesn't show up a lot, it has to be said, and yet what I think we all know is that good quality spoken language in the classroom and at home underpins everything else. And there are things teachers can do in the way they ask questions around that, aren't they? Could you just explain some of that? Some of this doesn't have to cost money. It's about creating the kind of classrooms that, that you, Jeff, have often promoted where the teacher talks less and children talk more, whether they, they come up with the questions instead of answering questions, where the teacher might listen to what they say and then throw it back to them by adding some words, expanding what they've said, asking open questions instead of closed, closed questions. A lot of this is just about what we as adults do in classroom. It doesn't have to be a big extra thing. And just one last question, which is specifically on vocabulary, and that is, you, you made a comment about vocabulary, I think I'm, I'm right, is a very significant predictor of how children do later on. I was quite taken aback uh, by the yeah. figure, so just talk to me about that. Yes, well, if you have poor vocabulary at five, you're one and a half times more likely to have mental health problems when you're 32, and twice as likely to be unemployed. Uh, children's early language is the best predictor of school attainment. Vocabulary for secondary uh, Leaders, it's quite interesting to know the vocabulary at 13 was a better predictor of GCSE English literature than was social socioeconomic factors. So right through the age range, it's a strong predictor. That means, uh, as George Sampson put it in 1921, 
Every teacher in English is a teacher of English. Absolutely, and we will not close the disadvantage gap unless we explicitly attend and plan for lessons as to how they will develop children's language quite quite broadly, including vocabulary. We just won't close their gap. Mm. It's essential that we mm. attend to it. Jean Gross, thank you. Ali Oliver, Chief Executive of the Youth Sport Trust. And for those people who don't know Youth Sport Trust, Ali, which has been around quite a long time, hasn't it? Uh, yeah. give, give us a flavour of what you do. So the Youth Sport Trust is a charity. We've been around for, we're in our 24th year. Um, and we have a really simple mission, which is to try and build a brighter future for children through sport and physical education. So we work predominantly in the education sector from early years uh, right through to sixth form. And the focus of our work really is how do we both improve the quality, relevance, accessibility, and value of PE and sport for young people and then how do we work with schools to ensure that that experience can deliver really great outcomes for young people's health, happiness, well-being and achievement. And I know the Youth Sport Trust because of course I was the head of a sports college for all of those years and understood pretty quickly that it wasn't just about sport, it was about what sport was doing way beyond what people might have assumed from just being about com competitions out on the hockey pitch and so on and so forth. Just, just kind of reflect back, before we talk about the future, on some of the achievements you've seen in education through sport at the core. I suppose the, the journey has been a long and winding one, um, but what we know from um, the work that we've done with schools is particularly, Jeff, you talk about the specialist sports college era and specialist schools era. Well, during that time, we were able to work with just over 500 schools, ultimately, who were putting sport at the heart of their school improvement plans and for four consecutive years they were the fastest improving schools in the education system in England including GCSE English and Maths and um, so that was fantastic but also around those specialist sports colleges were families of schools they were called school sport partnerships but many of them still exist as strategic hubs of um, P and sport activity where schools are planning developing evolving P and school sport as a collaborative and learning from each other and, and working together to share resources so I think that's one of the, the biggest landmark things but more recently, probably in the last three or four years, we've seen uh, a real shift from a focus purely on physical health benefits, uh, much more to the mental health, emotional well-being outcomes that we can get from PE and sport, and of course all of the social development of young people, particularly as the digital age has taken hold and young people are spending less time in the real world with other people and more time in the virtual world. It feels to me like we are at a tipping point of kinds, and I think probably everybody thinks they're at a tipping point at some point, but this one, for various reasons, what happened in 2010 is suddenly the narrative was very much more about a narrower curriculum, about examination success being the most important thing, about the e-back and so on. But now a combination of things are happening, you've just alluded to them, but what you haven't alluded to is you've also got an inspection framework that's going to change. Now you had Amanda Spielman here talking yes. to you yesterday. What kind of messages was she giving to the conference? Um, she gave us some really strong messages about how schools will be held accountable and that, you know, some, a couple of the real key points were the breadth and balance in the curriculum and curriculum intent and of course making sure that, that the curriculum for any school is relevant to its cohort of young people and their, their educational needs and with the world changing so much young people's needs are changing and, and education's got to respond to that and I think what she was saying yesterday about giving schools a bit more authority and autonomy to develop their own curriculum there is no Ofsted curriculum gives permission to schools to think about what young people need from education and right now I don't think anyone could argue young people don't need 
physical education and enrichment curriculum including sport and, and daily physical activity so it's it's I think it's opened things up a little bit for schools to now really focus back on that and we, we know that we've seen lots of cuts particularly in secondary schools time to the curriculum but then also um, personal development as a strand in its own right in the Ofsted framework it gives us huge room for manoeuvre of mm. being in schools well, everything from fundamental British values and citizenship right through to um, readiness for the next stage and of course healthy lifestyles sits in that, that theme as well so I think there is a lot now this moment in time I think is a recognition children need a different type of education schools want to be able to provide something different the 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 the, the Ofsted inspector are now looking or giving permission for schools to do it but there's a really important point in this Jeff is that physical education has to be up to it and we still know in too many schools we can say all of these the great things that sport can deliver for young people but of course it only can if the teaching and the learning in physical education is oriented intentionally to deliver these outcomes if we keep just delivering blocks of sport in physical education we'll, we'll still exclude the majority of children Okay, final question so we, I think we both think we're at a, a particular moment so we've got a focus on the curriculum which ought to be liberating for us to say let's do what's right for our young people not what's prescribed you've got a secretary of state i think it'd be fair to say kind of finding his feet in terms of what is it he stands for so he's talking more about character education he's changing the accountability system you've got number 10's policy advisor saying to us we think that accountability has run its course as a driver of school standards and at a time when we need more and more teachers we have to do something to make the job more joyful. Yeah. So my last question is really about leaders because they're the ones who can make this happen and they have far more influence than they realise. But you were talking to 19,000 leaders here. <laughs> if I'm a leader listening to this, what kind of thing might I be doing? If I'm someone who's thought I need to squeeze PE and extracurricular sport out of the curriculum in order to deliver higher standards and people are now saying, hang on, it's, it doesn't work like that. Yeah. What, what should I be doing next? I would really encourage school leaders to think about what other things that are driving young people's achievement and, and also the barriers to young people's achievement. So one of our key messages from our conference uh, here in Coventry yesterday was that physical education and sport can be a foundation for the other subjects that are in the curriculum. So rather than seeing physical education as one of uh, a number of subjects, it's actually I would encourage uh, school leaders to think about the well-being, um, the, the culture in their school and, and indeed uh, the things that make life fun in school and, and positive to be and sport can bring all of that mm. so it's actually uh, you know go right back to educational psychology and child development all of that we know about young people have to be well enough to learn and where in the curriculum can we focus on that well-being without having to find more time uh, we've already got hopefully in secondary schools and in primary schools we've, still, we've got um, subject leaders but we've got dedicated specialists in secondary schools we have facilities we've time on the timetable use it don't lose it make it work for your young people so get your PE department together and say listen what is our mission for PE and sport in our school how can it deliver for the needs of young people and how can it help the rest of the school um, benefit and, and, and have young people who are ready to learn, uh, keen to learn, well enough to learn and, and full of all of the uh, skills and character traits which give access to learning. Ali Oliver, thank you very much. Thank you. The Askell Leadership Podcast with Jeff Barton.